Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Welcome. I know that you're just um, passing the seconds until we get to enjoy chili together, so um, I'll do my best to hold your attention. But uh, um, Welcome to our family gathering. We are uh, in a series in the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel, uh, which is Matthew 5, verses 1 to 10. If you want to flip there, um, we also have the... the the uh, verses up on the screen as well. And what we're doing in this series is uh, every single week we're focusing on just one line of Jesus' most famous teaching. And what we're finding out is that uh, the Beatitudes really, they aren't um, ways for us to kind of have a certain attitude about us. They're, they're really an invitation of Jesus to a life of prosperity, so what Jesus is doing is he's unpacking what it looks like to participate in his kingdom. And when he's doing that, he's saying, my kingdom is a, is the, the people in my kingdom, they prosper, but they prosper in ways that are, uh, unexpected and surprising to the world. That it's not those who are full of joy that are prospering, but those who mourn their sin. It's not those that are, are wealthy that are prosperous, but those who are poor in spirit. And so he's turning all of these concepts on their head, and he's saying, this is what it looks like to have found me and to have found my kingdom. And we looked at, you know, we're, we're uh, over halfway through uh, into this series now, um, but we looked at, at the, the first half of this, uh, these statements, which are poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And those are, in a sense, the front door into his kingdom. And now we're looking at the fruit of what comes when we've found it. So, so this is a, a, a great few weeks to actually be able to test uh, our hearts a little bit and say, what does it look like for us to have discovered Jesus and his kingdom? What does it mean for us to participate in what God's doing in the world? And do I see the fruit that Jesus is talking about appearing on my tree, as, as it were, and do I see it in our community? Um, because we should. So, so last week we said that one of the primary fruits that shows up when we're in Jesus' kingdom is that we have transformed relationships. That our relationships get transformed. They're, they're marked by a sense of compassion and a, a action of mercy. And that when we receive the mercy of our king, we end up extending that same mercy to other people. And one of the ways that we can participate in that is if we go where, as Jesus goes, and as we kind of see the world through his eyes and we feel what he feels, the result of us going, seeing, and feeling is going to be that we are filled with mercy. So today we're going to look at the second of the fruit that comes when we live under King Jesus. And that's, so last week was a transformed relationships. This week is a transformed heart that inevitably when we experience Jesus, we will see transformation in our hearts. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9. He says, blessed, or we're translating this prosperous, are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Prosperous are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And So we're just going to answer three questions when it comes to this passage, what does it mean to have a pure heart? How do you get one? And how do you know you have one? What is it? How do you get it? How do you know you've got it? So what is it? What is a pure heart? Um, it's not just a change of behavior. 
I'll just start off by saying that. Uh, it, it, our world tends to look at the externals and we want to see the proof of someone's change. And so primarily when we think about transformation, we think about a, a change of behavior. I think about that when my, with my kids. Like, are they obeying me today or are they not obeying me today? And this is just a confession as a dad. Most days, if I'm honest, I really don't care what's going on in their heart as long as they're obedient. <laughs> right? I, I don't care if they're like cursing me from the inside as long as they're cleaning their room and getting dressed and doing the things that I, I want them to do. Why? Because I'm concerned about the externals. I'm concerned about their behavior. And, and a lot of that is stemming from the fact that I'm concerned about my own comfort as a dad and them not interrupting it. So I look at the externals. But that has to do with the way that you appear to someone else. And the problem is that you can, you can obey, you can behave, you can have the, a great appearance without needing to have a, train, a changed heart. And God, as we know, looks at the heart. And Jesus says that blessed or prosperous are the pure in heart. So what is the heart? Well, here's what it's not. The heart is not just the way you feel about something. Oftentimes when we think about our hearts, um, you know, the way that we respond to certain things, we're thinking about emotions. Do I feel prosperous? Do I feel close to God? Do I have a, 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 a tingling going on? Do I have a certain sensation? Do I, do I feel a certain way? And the heart, you have to know, is actually much more than that. The heart is the central hub of who you are. It's the fountain from which everything flows. Not just your feelings, but your thoughts and your passions and your desires, your appetites, your affections, purposes, endeavors. Everything flows out of your heart. It's the real you. It's the you that... that that has the internal dialogue that nobody else hears. It's the you that's the real you when nobody else is looking. And the Bible says to have a pure heart is a mark of the foundation of what it means to be in his kingdom. And that's more than the way that you feel. It's that your thinking, your behaviors, and your emotions are all being transformed simultaneously. So what does it mean to have a pure heart then? Because what do you think of when you hear the word pure? What comes to mind for you? You get to answer it. What's up? No contaminants. Yeah, so chemically pure, right? Holy? Yeah. Unstained or unalloyed. For the for you blacksmiths <laughs> out there, <laughs> yeah, with, without impurity, I, and many of those things are good concepts. Here's what I think: oftentimes, what we think pure means perfect. That in order to experience the blessing of the kingdom, I need to be perfect. Um, and here's why I know that uh, that we think that way. Um, because we, since we're concerned about the externals and we think that perfection is the goal, uh, when we get into an environment like this, if you've been 
If your history at all has been anything like growing up in the church or participating in a church, and it doesn't really even matter what denomination, you say to yourself something from the car to the front door that sounds a whole lot like this. I need to get it together so that people don't think I'm messed up. Like if I'm sad, i got to check that at the door. If I'm mad, i got to check that at the door. If, I'm, if I've sinned, I need to leave that behind and I need to show forth a good face. I need to be perfect. Because if I'm not, then people won't think that I'm blessed. I don't have a seat here. And that's not what purity means. Um, purity means that you come as you are and you get cleaned up. Not because you're perfect, but because something happens to you that provides purity. Um, so purity does mean to be undefiled. It, it means to be single-minded in, in the way that we think. If you think of it chemically, it means to be without impurities that, that taint the, the compound, if you will. And whenever the Bible talks about purity, it's purity from something specific. So it's not just purity generally as if you need to to be perfect in everything that you do, but it's pure from something. Do you know what that something is? That something is is idols. To be pure biblically means that you are pure from idolatry. So a couple examples. Psalm 24 says this. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not do what? Trust in in an idol. Ezekiel 36.25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is the Lord talking. and And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. So that's the Old Testament. Look at the New Testament now. In Hebrews 9.14, the author says this, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, how much more will He cleanse our hearts, or our, our consciences, I'm sorry, from acts that lead to death. You know, that literally says from dead works, so that we may serve the living God. Whenever the Bible talks about cleanliness, in the Old Testament, it constantly talks about idols. And then we get to the New Testament, and all of a sudden the language switches, and now cleansing means to be cleansed from dead works. Now, what's an idol? Here's an idol. An idol is anything that is a good thing in your life that you elevate to a God thing. It's when you take something good from the Creator and you make it into more than what He created it to be. God created all of us, every human being, every image bearer, to find absolutely everything that we need in God and God alone. And what are the big things that we need? And we've, we've talked about these several times. The big things that you and I need existentially are significance, security, satisfaction, and purpose. All of us need those things. Significance, security, satisfaction, and purpose. You need those on a daily basis just as much as you need bread and water. 
They are needs that your soul has. And if you don't find those things in God, there is a vacuum within you that will suck whatever it can into that void and try to make a a round peg fit in a square hole. And so what is worship? Worship is when we give worth to something, whoever or whatever that may be, that we believe can deliver on those four things. And so idolatry is when we give worth to good things, we elevate them to God things, and we look to those things to give us what? Significance, security, satisfaction, and purpose. So, some examples. What are things that can become idols? Our children. Good things, right? Children are a blessing from the Lord. They're a reward from Him, Psalm 127 says. And yet our hearts can turn those little beautiful people into gods that we want to serve us. Now here's, you think, I don't do that with my kids. Okay. (laughs) I do, and I know plenty of people who do. Um, I, I was having a conversation with a dad on Friday night. We had a movie night in our driveway, and we invited a bunch of uh, neighbors and, and kids that are, are uh, friends with our boys uh, from school, and I got talking with one of the dads, and he is a natural parental conversation between two dads. It goes like this. What are your kids involved with? Right? And I said, not much of anything. <laughs> Um, they do some swimming lessons, but that's that's primarily it. And the dad's response, incredibly well-meaning, is that he began to talk about all that's actually available where we live. Like the fact that his kids are in soccer in the fall, and they're in basketball in the winter, and they are in um, baseball in the spring, and they swim all summer. And he's just talking about how he sees his kids growing and, you know, all these different... They're they're growing in their ability to be on a team and work together with other people. And, you know, they're they're becoming more well-rounded human beings. And isn't that all we want for our kids? And I left the conversation going... I am giving my children a subpar childhood. (laughs) Now, why am I thinking that way? Um, Because there's still a, a small part of my heart that wants my kids to grow up with the perfect childhood, where they get to the end of their childhood and they get into adulthood and they look back at me and they go, thank you, Dad, for providing absolutely everything that you could to make sure I had the absolute best childhood. And I'm afraid in my heart that if I don't participate in all the things that are quote-unquote available to them as kids who are of their age right now, that I'm somehow depriving them of this perfect childhood. And they will, instead of looking back at me, you know, as as their 25-year-old self and saying, God, you know, Dad, thanks for... For, for giving me the, the greatest childhood, that they'll look back and they'll go, why didn't you get me into soccer? <laughs> and basketball, and baseball, and skiing, and swimming, and every other thing. There's a heart, part of my heart that, that is fearful of my children's disapproval of me. 
That's idolatry. I'm, in a sense, I'm looking to them to gain significance and purpose. And every parent does the same thing. Why do you think the, the vast majority of parents have their kids run ragged in absolutely every sport? That's part of it. <laughs> That's part of it. And this is one of the telling things that that this dad who loves his children said, yeah, my kids are in all of these different things, but but pretty soon my son's going to have to settle down and choose one because if he doesn't, he's not going to be as good as the other kids. He's seven, and he has to make a choice about the next ten years of his future because if he doesn't, he won't be as good as the other kids on the field of his choice. And if he's not as good as those other kids on the field of his choice, then he's going to lack purpose in his life. He's going to think that he's somehow less significant than the other boys and girls on that same field. And because he's not getting his idol, he will be destroyed. And if he's destroyed, I as a dad will be destroyed. That's idolatry. That is lifting your soul to an idol and giving your worship to something that can't fulfill it. And we, th- we do this regularly. Children are just one example, though. Because maybe you're, you know, maybe children aren't it, but maybe your work is. And, and you look to your job for security, and many people do. We look at the the name that's on the corner of our paycheck and we think that our eternal security comes through that company. And if we lose that paycheck, then we are lost. Or we get a lot of sense of satisfaction and purpose from our jobs and there's nothing wrong with that. But the moment you remove that, are are you destroyed by it? If you did not have that outlet for gaining purpose in the world, would you believe you have no significance as a human being? That's idolatry. Many of us are are very competitive, and I'm included in this. And we feel significant so long as we're winning or the, the, the team or whatever we support is winning. And if that team doesn't do well, then we are not doing well. But if that team is doing well, then we feel like we're doing great. There was a a really honest interview after the Eagles won the Super Bowl with a guy on Market Street at the parade, and he told the reporter, now that the Eagles have won, I don't have to feel like I'm a loser ever again. Really? (laughs) Like for 50 years you felt like you were a loser because your team never won and now that your team has won, you think now I have security and purpose and significance for the rest of my life because of 2018. It's not true. I want to see the interview with that same guy 20 years from now. Now, maybe they win a whole bunch more Super Bowls, and maybe he still feels like a winner. The point is not that you're actually getting your idols. The point is that you're lifting your soul to something that can't ultimately sustain it and fulfill it. 
Many of us look to people for that, and we sense that we have meaning in our life if a certain person or certain people are valuing us or loving us or noticing us. And if those people don't notice us and, or don't give us the, the, the attaboys and the acclaims that, that we're after, then we feel rejected. And when we feel rejected, we don't have the significance that we think we should. Or we look at people, rather than image bearers of God to be loved, we look at them not for, for their building up and their um, flourishing and prosperity, but we look at them through eyes of gaining satisfaction from them. And that's the definition of lust. Lust is when you look at another image bearer of God and you think to yourself, that person can give me something. Sexual pleasure, power, significance, security, whatever. It's, it's using other people. See, idols are good things. Nothing I've said is a bad thing, right? They're all good gifts from a good God. There's nothing wrong with them. But when they become your source, your center for gaining security, significant satisfaction or purpose, they end up running your life rather than you running them. Now, why does the Old Testament say that you have to be purified from idols. Do you know what idols are? They're like, they were like little wooden carved images that you'd place on your mantle and then you would bow down and you worship those. And we think that's ridiculous. Why would somebody ever do something so foolish? And then the New Testament comes along and says you have to be purified from your dead works. Why does it say that? Because they're the same thing. And we are fooled. See, Every idol that we worship is, here's what it is. It's a way for us to maintain control over our lives. It's, a, it, it's circumventing God's good plan for our security and significance and purpose and satisfaction so that we can gain those things in our timing, with our way, according to our power, and we don't need him to do it. See, The gospel, the good news of Jesus says that you have a creator, Father, who adores you and who sent his son so that you could be adopted into his family. And that this God who knows you and loves you adopted you in because he knows how to run your life far better than you do. That ultimately he's in control and that he can, can, can bring prosperity in your life in ways that you couldn't imagine. And that we can put our faith and our trust in Him completely and see that He will use our lives to the best of His ability, not to the best of our ability. That's prosperity in the, God, in the kingdom. And that's what we were made for, family. But what idolatry does is it comes and gives us a way to hijack that control back. It's a way to say, I can have significance on my own. And I don't need to get it from him. I'll prove that I'm significant. I'll go out and get the best job I possibly can and then I will know. Or I could be satisfied with what I accomplish and I can rest in what I do for myself rather than resting what he's done for me. And what's really happening is that you're seeking to gain purity and wholeness on your own to, in a sense, be your own God and your own Savior 
through what the author of Hebrews calls dead works. And this is true of absolutely every person on the planet. Even the most atheistic person that wants nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with God, thinks that everything has a scientific reason and just lives their life as secularly as possible is still a worshiper according to this definition. Because they are giving worth to something to provide those four things. Everyone does this. And Jesus says prosperity is not going to be found that way. Isn't it crazy that the world essentially, if we're looking at it this way, defines prosperity as attaining your idols? Right? Um, When you can find security through your job, we applaud that. Yes, like somebody's, you know, they're set for life. They have a 401k, they have a a pension, and and man, isn't that fantastic? Or or they, they do something really great and they gain significance through their accomplishment, and we think, that's awesome, and we cheer them on. Or, or they have deep meaning and purpose in their life, but they've achieved it their, their own way. And we think, that's amazing. And what's happening? We're achieving the fact that they are getting an idol. And even we as the church, this is where I think it gets totally crazy, we as the church, we see other people getting their idols and we think that they're actually more prosperous than we are. That's how you know we're upside down. We look at the person with a bigger house than us and we think, man, if I had as many bedrooms as them. We look at the, at the, the neighbor with a Tesla and we think, man, I want an electric car. We, we look at the family that takes five vacations a year and we think they're more blessed than we are because they get to go to exotic locations that we haven't gotten to see yet. We look at the family with the perfect children who behave in every situation and who are part of eight different sports and they don't have the time to actually sit down and have a meal together as a family because they're so run ragged. And we think, man, why aren't my kids more like theirs? Family, what that is is thirsting after someone else's idol. The Bible says even if you, even if you got it, it would lead to your death. It does not lead to prosperity. It's like trying to climb up a ladder that's leaning against a burning building. I'm convinced, though, if we actually listen to our consciences, that deep down inside we know the truth. That, that, and, and what our consciences are, are telling us is that the, to, to thirst after those things is actually going to the wrong thing to find what we ultimately need and that if we go to it again and again, it won't give us rest? I'm convinced of that. But we have to get off the, the, the wheel. We've got to wake up. Because to have a pure heart is to 
is to have identified your particular idols. What are you giving worth to? What are the, what are the idols that you're serving? It, chances are they're probably different this week than they were last week. So you've got to do this all the time. And are you straining them out so that what's left is that you're running to the one who can give you what you truly need with your whole heart? That's purity of heart. So we're all idolaters, but the pure in heart say, Lord, sprinkle me clean. I want to worship you and you alone. Now, how do you get a pure heart? The answer simply We've already actually saw the, the passage is the blood of Christ. We get a pure heart through the blood of Christ. Now, for Israel, if you think about the, what has come before in God's story, before uh, Jesus came along, in order for them to gain purity, they needed to stand before God. But they couldn't just burst into the temple and go, here I am, God, because what would happen to them? They would be struck down. Because the... the They were impure. They were unclean. They couldn't just burst into God's presence. They needed to be purified. And the way that happened is that they would entrust themselves to a priest who would do the job for them. That priest would go and would offer sacrifices on their behalf. And they would offer animals to be burnt and sacrificed. And the blood of the animals substituted for their blood, if they burst into the temple... God would require their blood because they're impure. And so rather than their blood being offered before a holy God, the priest would go and he would offer the blood of a sacrifice so that that animal would essentially have to sacrifice its blood as a substitute for yours. And the priest is the one that would do the exchange. And so if you wanted to stand in God's presence, literally if you wanted to see God, you would trust in the priest's work. His work would lead to your life. Now, the great problem was that the purity that was offered for you by the priest was external and temporary at best. It never actually cleansed your heart. It just cleansed the outside And it never lasted. It had to be done again and again and again and again. Every time you wanted to go to the temple, you'd have to go through this long and and drawn-out process one more time. And then Jesus comes along. And the writer of Hebrews says this, Jesus did not enter into the temple, into God's presence, by means of, of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. He ran into the temple, in a sense, and said, Here am I, and was struck down. Thus obtaining, for us, eternal redemption. Jesus was the only one that could burst into the temple, that could see God face to face, because he was the only one who was undefiled, because he was God in the flesh. He goes bursting into the temple. He's the only one that can stand there completely pure, and he's struck down anyway. Why? Keep reading. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. That's that outward temporary kind of cleansing that we used to get. How much more then will the blood of Christ cleanse 
our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may do what? Serve the living God. Literally to to go into the presence of God and to say, here am I, Lord, send me. He was struck down so that we could stand whole. His blood was poured out so that our hearts could be cleansed. And what Hebrews is saying is that the purity that he achieved for us, it works the same way as it did for the priest to secure purity for the people of Israel. The only difference is we have a much better mediator. We have a better priest. And he doesn't just go in to to purify us temporarily. His blood covers our sins eternally. And when you know that... you, you. you don't have to go through your life seeking purity because you have purity. And His blood goes in and it doesn't just cleanse the outside. He cleanses our consciences, our hearts. And so just as Israel trusted in the work of the high priest to cleanse them, we too, we trust in our high priest. Only Jesus goes where we can't go and His work is far better than our work. And the result of this transaction that he secures on our behalf is that we're free. And we're, we could be full of joy and we could be full of the removal of guilt. That's the whole reason Jesus says, come to me because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Come to me and you'll find rest. What he's saying is every other idol promises more than it can deliver and demands more than it gives. I am the only God who can meet your need for security, significance, satisfaction, and purpose, and I will cleanse you completely the moment you come to me. Now, here's what you're thinking. If you're a Christian, I know this already. I believe this. Everything that you just said, I say yes and amen. I believe that it's true. Jesus is my high priest. He cleanses me. It's his blood that does it. I've got it. But I still worship idols. What is wrong with me? Aren't you thinking that? I think that all the time. What's wrong with me? If this is true, why don't why isn't this a reality? Here's why it's not a reality. And this is what's wrong with you and me. Yeah, I slipped that in just in time. <laughs> What's wrong with us is that we we do not believe that the condition of our heart is the real us. Oh, I'm sorry, let me let me put it this way. We believe that the condition of our heart is the real us instead of the position of our heart in Christ. I'm going to say that again. We believe that the condition of our heart the, the, the way that we give ourselves over to idols, the impurity that we see yet still in our lives and in our hearts, we, we believe, we, that's what we see from a day-to-day basis, and we believe that that's still the real me. And it's not. The real you is the you that is seated with Christ eternally, 
for whom the world cannot touch because they're not part of the world anymore. The real you is the you whose heart is perfectly cleansed because it is covered with the blood of Christ. That's the real you if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, then you're still impure. But if you're in Christ, then this is now true of you, and it's more true than what your eyes can see that you participate in on a day-to-day basis. Um, here's an example of this. When, when Peter goes and, and um, shares the gospel with a Gentile family and they all come to faith in Christ and immediately they begin to demonstrate the fact that they believe in Jesus. And this is the first time this has happened to a people that are outside of uh, Israel and they're going, this is crazy. They haven't done any work yet. They haven't been circumcised like we are. They haven't kept the Sabbath like we keep the Sabbath. They haven't gone to the temple to present themselves before God. Like all the steps that we've had to do to to cleanse ourselves, they haven't done any of those things, but they're showing that they actually have God in them. And this is what what um, what's said about them in Acts 9. God, who knows the heart, showed what? That he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. What's being said about them? They're pure. They haven't done anything to clean up their act other than believe in Jesus And what is being said about them is that they're pure. They're undefiled. They're whole. And now here's what happens. When you believe that that is now true of you, that that's the real you, that your heart has been cleansed and it's not what you've done, and that identity becomes more real to you than than who you are apart from Christ, then you end up wanting to live out that identity rather than the one that's still enslaved to idols. Because here's what's happening. When we're giving our hearts to idols, this is is what's going on. We are like children who have been adopted into a king's family. If you've been adopted into a king's family, what's going to be true of you? You get to live like a king, right? Everything that belongs to the king is now yours because you belong to the king. This is what idolatry is for people that believe in Christ. It's as though you've been adopted by a king, but you still sleep on the streets. Legally, you have every right to go into the throne room and sleep at the foot of your savior and king, and yet you choose not to because you believe you don't have access to him. And so you sleep on the streets and you eat from a dumpster when you could feast with the king and sleep in his presence. When I put it that way, doesn't it seem silly to eat from the dumpster? Like, why in the world would you do that? And that's what we're doing. And that's what we need to tell ourselves that we're doing. Because that's how we get cleaned up over time. That's how the condition of our hearts moves towards the position of our hearts is that we take the, the things that our hearts are, are giving worth to, 
the things that we're looking to for significance and security, and we compare them to what we have in Christ, and we, compare, we lift the two of them up and we look at them together and we go, why would I give my soul to an idol when I have this? Why would I look for the satisfaction that my soul is craving in my computer screen when I can have infinite satisfaction and know that I'm eternally loved more than my heart could ever bear in Christ? Family, you do that again and again and again and you know what's going to happen? You're going to become more pure in your condition. You're already there positionally. You just don't believe it yet. If we believed it, family, if we really believed it, then we would say, I don't want the idol anymore compared to what I have with him. I, I want holiness and I want, cleanse, I want God to come in and I want him to cleanse my heart. And I want to give over my control to him. Because he's good and he's faithful and he's better than absolutely anything that I could run to. And what's, you know what the promise is? When that's your heart's desire? 1 John 1, nine, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will do what? Purify us from all unrighteousness. The moment you confess and you say, I want you more than I want this, here's what God does. He says, I will do it. You don't have to. You just come to me and I will do the work. I did the work the first time. I do the work this time. Are you running to him for cleansing? I'm... I'm so convinced and it breaks my heart that the church of Jesus Christ would come to the king and the priest once for the, for the sins that they accumulated maybe over a lifetime and go, this is amazing, I'm, I'm clean, I'm whole, I get to be in God's presence. And then from that day forward, they rely on their own cleansing. It's a shame. Because we, we can never clean our, our lives up enough to be able to stand in God's presence. But the moment that we go to God's presence and ask Him for purity is the moment we get it. Now, how do you know if you have it? The answer is that you get to see Him. Prosperous are the pure in heart, for they do what? They see God. And that's the test in a sense. That's, that's how we know that we've gotten a pure heart is that we get to see him. And I, I was praying about this this week and I don't know the ways that you particularly see God, um, but I, I was asking him for ways in which we get to see him when our hearts are pure. And um, there are four things that I kind of settled on. And it's... Use these as kind of an examination of your own heart to see if you're actually living in the purity of, the, of what God uh, can do in your heart. Here, here's the first one. The pure in heart see God in their growth. They see God in their growth. They see his fingerprints all over their hearts. Now, they see God in their growth in, in that they desire growth. 
life for the pure in heart isn't just people that are going, gosh, I hope I make the right decision all the time. Man, I I want my good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds because then if they do, I'll feel better about myself. No, that's not enough for the pure in heart. The pure in heart don't just want to make good decisions. They they don't just want to be good people. They want to be pure people. They have a desire to see God radically transform their hearts so that they can become more like Christ. They, They want their condition to match their position in Him. And they hunger for their hearts to grow and to be pure more than they hunger for anything else. Do you want that for your heart? Or are you content with just making decent decisions? That'll tell you if you're pure in heart. The pure in heart are also, they don't just desire growth, they're acquiring growth. They're actually seeing evidence of God burning out the impurities in their hearts so that over time, they actually are more pure than they used to be. They they see evidence in their hearts of them saying yes to Christ and no to idols. Do you see that happening in your heart continuously over time? That's a good evidence that you have the purity that comes through the blood of Christ. And then they credit their growth to somebody else. They see God as not just the the one who's waiting on them to, to grow, but the one who's initiating the growth. And they continuously give credit to him. And because they give credit to him and they don't credit themselves, they're constantly surprised by God's activity in them. They're constantly shocked that God would choose them and would grow them despite their best efforts to wiggle away from his presence. They're people that are always going, why me? Why me? Like, of all the people on the earth, I get to know Christ. And he, get, he, he comes in to, to purify my heart. I did nothing to deserve this. So they see God in their growth. The pure in heart also see God in their failures. And this is a big one. They see God in their failures. Here's what the world does. The world says the prosperous are the pure in appearance, don't they? The ones that have it all together on the outside. It, but in order to be pure in appearance, you have to hide your heart so that you can seem like you have it all together. This is a mark not of pure people, but religious people, right? Religious people are great at this. They do all the externals right, but inside they're rotting away. Now, what happens when a religious person fails? What happens when a religious person sins and screws up their life royally when they slide back into old behavior? Can they see God in the midst of their failures? No way. They can't see God in their failures because their purity was based on their performance. And when their performance fails, they can't enter into God's presence. And so the result is they end up hiding from Him. You you ever wonder, like, somebody's around and they're participating in the church for a long period of time, and then you learn that something's happened in their life, a moral failure, a divorce, something springs up out of nowhere, and what happens to their presence in the community? They disappear. Why? Because their purity was based on their performance, and the moment their performance failed, they no longer feel like they can participate in God's community. That is finding your purity in yourself, not in Jesus Christ. 
when your purity is in Jesus Christ, the moment you fail is the moment you get grace. And so your, your failures don't lead to your separation from God or your separation from His people because your failures haven't changed one molecule of your heart because your heart pumps with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when you fail as a pure person in Christ, you say, God, you knew this was coming. You knew about this day before I ever knew about it, and you still went to the cross for me. Oh, how you love me in spite of my sins and my failures. Nothing can keep me from you. Someone who's truly pure in heart, when they experience failure, it actually drives them into the presence of Christ. Not away from Him. Can you see God in your failures? in your sin, and your screw-ups. That will tell you if your heart is really pure. The pure in heart see God in their relationships. See, the impure in heart tend to, because they're justifying themselves and because they're always worried about the condition of their hearts and whether or not they're measuring up to their standards, they divide the world into two groups of people. There's the good people and the bad people. And as long as they're not the bad people but the good people, then they feel like they're okay. Here's the problem. When you do that, you can't see God in your relationships because you're always worried about whether or not you're better than somebody else. And so you, that, what that does is it creates a blindness so you can't actually see his activity in the life of somebody else. Because you're so consumed with yourself. When you're pure in heart, it removes the self-absorption. And no longer do you divide the world into the good people and the bad people. You divide the world into the people that have been purified and the people who could be. And, And because you, by no effort of your own, are part of the people that are purified you can say like Paul, I'm the worst of all sinners because only I know the depths of my idolatry and that even though I was okay on the outside, inside I was a sinner, but God changed me. And here's what that does to your heart. It means that that you're able to see God's activity not just in you, but in the people that are around you. The pure in heart see everyone around them as a potential target for God's love to strike. They look at the world knowing their own hearts and they, they don't see the good people and the bad people. They look at the world and they see there is no one who is a lost cause. There is no one who, could not, who is not sick enough for the physician to come in and heal them. Because when, you're, when you've been healed by the physician, you realize that you didn't do anything to deserve it and you were the worst among all sinners. And so now you look at the people around you and you don't just see them for the condition of their hearts anymore. You see them for the purity that they could have if they believed who they were in Christ. Family, I I see far too many people that discount others Because when they look at their life, they see the sin rather than Jesus. We do this with our neighbors and we do this with our spouses. And we think, man, if they would just clean up their act, life would go a whole lot better. 
Don't you do that? Our home would be so much more efficient if my spouse just got their act together. (laughs) If they just didn't act that way. We're not looking at our relationships through the purity of Christ if we're doing that. Last, the pure in heart see God in their future. They see God in their future. Um, because, and here's how. Because they see God as the reward, they don't just see the future with despair, but they see it with faith because they know that even if every idol is burned away from their life, even if absolutely everything is taken away, nothing can take away the one who made their heart pure. 1 Corinthians 13:12 says, For now we see only as a reflection in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now we, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. One day, if you're in Christ, you're going to get to see Jesus face to face. The impure in heart... They look at their future and they see Jesus as a means to an end. And I know Christians that do this. They look at their future and they think about heaven and they think about eternal life and they see Jesus not as the end himself but as a means to get something else. Eternal life, reunion with a family member, a a mansion in the sky... (laughs) a harp on a cloud, whatever your vision is of eternal life, the impure in heart, they look at Jesus and they go, Jesus, you're great, but you are a means to another goal. The pure in heart, they look at Jesus and they say, you're the goal and one day I'll get you. One day I'll have you. One day I will get infinite opportunities to grow in communion with God himself and to know you face to face. Do you see Jesus that way? Or do you see him as a means to another end? That'll tell you if your heart is being purified by the king. When it's being purified by the king, you want nothing more than the king himself. The pure in heart means that you see God in your growth, in your failures, in your relationships, and in your future. Are you pure in heart? Or are you desperately trying to purify it on your own? One way leads to sight and life, and the other way leads to blindness and death. And here's the good news, family. Jesus comes to us and says, I am the one who comes and opens the eyes of the blind. I give sight to the blind. And I make dead things alive. If you come to me, I can do the work. And I just want to encourage you, please don't trust in your own dead works to purify your heart and don't run after the idols that can't satisfy you. Run to the one who makes you new and ask him to open your eyes. Let's pray and do that now. Father, we thank you that you do open the eyes of the blind. God, I thank you that though we are all 
worshipers and we give worth to things that can't satisfy us and fill us on a continual basis, you didn't wait for us to see our need for you. You came and did what we couldn't before we knew we needed it. Jesus, I thank you that you offer us a position of purity before we ever clean anything up. If we've yet to come to know that purity, God, convict us maybe for the first time that we need to run to you as opposed to the other things. God, cleanse us and forgive us from all unrighteousness. If we've been a believer but we've run to other things because we've forgotten who we are. Bring us home. Lift us up off the streets and carry us into the throne room again. God, we want to see you. Make it so. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.